0: Let me open us this, this morning in a word of prayer and then we're going to uh, do something special this morning. I'm excited about let So let's, let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning very thankful for the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day reminds us of the grace of God. Reminds us that we are sinners saved by grace. Reminds us of that tremendous truth. In Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How grateful we are this day, Lord, that you hold none of our sins against us, that in your eyes we are seen as righteous as your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful to gather together as clean believers, as those who uh, are, are loved by you, and we love because you first loved us. Thank You, Lord, for this time to be together this morning to consider the, the worship of the body of Christ, and I pray that You would use this time uh, both now and during our formal worship service, Lord, and this evening as well, to elevate our ability to render to You what is due to Your name, all the praise and honor and glory that should go only to the only one true living God. We pray that this morning would be useful toward that end. And we thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read to you one verse, and you don't have to turn there. It's one verse only. And that is Psalm 149, verse 1. says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, His praise in the assembly of the godly. I love that verse because it connects singing with our gathering together. And a little bit later this morning, during our formal worship service, I'm going to address the question, why do, why do we sing? And it's a, in a series I'm calling Biblical Answers to Difficult Questions, and you might say, why, is, why do we sing a difficult question? Well, I'll address that this morning, uh, but I'll, I'll give you a little hint. Ask ten Christians why they sing in church, and I'll bet nine of them won't know. Or if they give you an answer, it'll be theologically inaccurate. So, what uh, we've been thinking about is in preparation for our move to White Lane, we want to focus on our number one priority as a church, and that is to worship God. And, of course, a vital part of that worship, second only to the preached word, is the singing of the word of God. And as Darren is fond of pointing out, uh, you will usually remember the hymns we sang long after you forget the sermon. That was preached because the tune sticks in your head if I could sing a whole sermon you might remember it better but then you would never come back so we can't do that so for just the next few minutes and before Darren takes over and does something fun we're going to do a very brief history of the development of music worship and I know I said the word history and you're like oh no I'm in the wrong place but history is important for us so let's just walk through this very briefly just for a few minutes Congregational congregational singing is commanded in the New Testament. We are to be addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with our hearts, Ephesians 5.19. So how did the early church do this? Well, the early church had a hymnal. Uh, The hymnal would have been the book of Psalms. That's what they had. And they sang the Psalms, a tradition which continues to today, which is very important. But very quickly, hymns began to be written, reflecting the theological truths of the Scriptures, and they were short hymns. And some of those hymns even became canonized as part part of Scripture. For example, 1 Timothy 3.16 that we've looked at a couple of times, this great exaltation of Christ is most likely a hymn fragment that made its way into Scripture under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages, congregational singing began to basically vanish. And the reason for that was the Roman Catholic control over all things that seemed to even be Christian. And what happened was is that the priests began to assume the role of singing on behalf of the church. That they, they were the worshipers on your behalf. And so that was, of course, part of the heresy of the Roman Catholic religion, which says that justification is a process, not a one-time event, among other heresies. Well, as you can imagine, during the beginning days of the Great Reformation, a resurgence in congregational singing began to really take place. And the reason was because theology demanded this. We had the return of the true biblical gospel of salvation by grace alone and not by any works. And and Martin Luther, of course, the, the singular leader of the Reformation, he believed very strongly that no priest... No clergyman can worship on behalf of God's people, but that all true believers must worship God directly. And we have the right to do that. We have the privilege of doing that because of the cross of Christ. And so Luther is a major reason that congregational singing returned uh, to the church as it should have been. And it's no accident, this is God's providence, that the greatest music, some would say in the history of the world, but the greatest music being written during the days of the Reformation and afterwards, was being written by German composers. And Luther took the finest elements of German music, he put grand theological words to them, and that we know of, there may have been many more, we know that personally, uh, Luther wrote 37, 38 hymns himself, putting incredible theological truths with grand music. But there was a small problem. The grand music developing at the time in the Western world, included the use of multiple melody lines. Sometimes in music, this is called an obligato line, where multiple melodies are happening. And you're saying, I've never heard that before. If you've gone to any movie, you've heard that. Because it's a common way to do movie themes, that you have these grand melodies moving at the same time. And so it sounds wonderful, but the problem is, you can't sing words to that. And so the reformers began insisting that all the melodies sung in church move as one unit and they would say that there were three or four different melodies just all on different notes and they all moved at the same time we call it four-part harmony but they called it four different melodies so that you could sing one syllable per note and now you could hear the truth of what was being sung so now the the melody and the words could be understood and the focus was on the truth of the theology being sung and so we now have our well-known hymn style with all the parts moving at the same time. Well, as the Reformation spread quickly to England, English hymns for congregational singing began to proliferate, but it didn't happen all at once. Generally speaking, the churches in England, though many of them began to be reformed theologically, were not reformed musically, and they would go from grand preaching to dull, tired, horrible singing. And there was one little boy who complained of this all the time. He said, it's dull and it's, it's dead and it doesn't match the, the word of God. And he complained to his dad. And his dad irritatingly told him, if you don't like the songs of the church, then write something better. Well, not only did the young boy eventually become a minister of the gospel in the early 1700s, he also wrote 750 hymns. The first hymnal ever published in North America, 50% of the hymns were this little boy's hymns. And of course, you know him as Isaac Watts, the master hymn writer of England. Well, as congregational singing spread in faithful churches, now in a young America, there was a a problem. In Europe, music education was somewhat known and primarily happened, frankly, in the churches. But in America, you you move your family across a prairie and you build a, a log cabin somewhere. There's no music education. There's no education at all. And yet faithful churches popping up in the very young American colonies wanted their congregations to know how to sing. And so if you wanted music education, you didn't go to school, you went to church. And that's where you learned to sing. And music education programs were there just to improve worship. And of course, all throughout history, God has faithfully raised up great hymn writers for every generation. Not many. It always seems like there's, a, there's two or three, every generation, that make a huge impact. Uh, writers like Fanny Crosby and Charles Wesley and Francis Havergal and Robert Lowry and Philip Bliss. In recent years, the Gettys and some of the writers for Sovereign Grace Music have blessed us with tremendous hymns. Now, a little, little known fact... And I didn't even learn about this until it was happening, and I I really appreciated Pastor Darren's leadership on this. In building our new sanctuary at White Lane, the team utilized the sound and lighting company to help with the design, but not for the reasons you might think. The acoustic design of our sanctuary is designed to be what they call live, meaning you can hear people in it. Most sanctuaries now are designed to be dead. And I don't mean that spiritually. I just mean uh, acoustically, meaning that all sound can be controlled through a soundboard and and electronically. And so the deader the room, the more it's like a, a recording studio, the better for that. Well, the problem with that is that a dead room, you can't hear each other sing. You can't hear that. And so ours is designed to be live so that we can hear one another and revel in the truths of God that we sing to Him and we sing to each other. Now, speaking of singing to each other, going all the way back to the 4th century or earlier, churches took their cues from the Old Testament and they began doing something glorious and they began forming choirs. After the Reformation, church choirs began to be a regular part of how the church expressed the truths of God and they formed really a, a, a glorious part of our sacred music tradition. And choirs during the Reformation had an amazing benefit to the church. Here are some of the observations that reformers made about choirs. First of all, it gave many members of the church the chance to serve. That you might not be able to do anything else. Your spiritual gift might be that of breathing, and that's it. But if you can breathe, you can sing. And so many people were able to serve. There's a second benefit. It helped teach and engender good congregational singing. All musicians know this that you, you sing the way you are led to sing. If you've ever visited a church where the, the music leader, you know, God bless him for trying, just can't hardly sing his way out of a paper sack, what happens? There's just a quiet, uh, very uncomfortable lull until you, everybody's relieved to get to the end of the hymns because of leadership. But with a choir, they this that the congregation sings. You also have a third benefit. The choir illustrates joy in the Lord. Isn't it tremendous to watch dozens of believers smiling and singing the truths of the, of the gospel It's inspiring to us? They also found it was a way for the church to look at one another while worshiping. Our particular design works for a lot of things. It does not work well for singing to each other. And once in a while, we'll have you face each other. And I know when you're in the middle row, that's really uncomfortable. You're like that. And, but, but we're supposed to sing to one another. We also found that it was a way, they found it was a way to fulfill Ephesians 5 that literally the choir sings psalms, hymns and spiritual songs to the church. They also found it provided fellowship of the saints that went beyond age groups and generations that you didn't have Sunday school classes divided by age group, uh, so to speak. In a choir, you, had, you could have 14-year-olds all the way up to 90-year-olds and, and everybody in between and it mixed the church up beautifully. They also found, and believe it or not, this has been a problem for generations and generations. They had avoided star status for one gifted musician. As early as the middle 1500s, some churches began falling into the trap of trying to find that one terrific musician that they could put in place that would attract people to the church. And that's a trap. And they found that the choir was a beautiful demonstration of how the body of Christ is supposed to function. Many different giftings all working together to produce worship to our holy God. That's something interesting to me, and I've, just a, a, an observation I've made. I like to watch talent shows. I like to see unknown talent. It's fun to see a, a 10-year-old with a voice like a 25-year-old. And, and just to see those happen. And, and the, but there's an undeniable phenomenon that happens with the unbelieving judges of these shows. Yes, they hear great solo singers, they hear great instrumentalists, even small ensembles. But when a good choir sings, these unbelieving judges are brought to tears. They're they're destroyed emotionally. And why is this? Because God made us to be moved in our souls when many voices sing about one idea. And even when somebody's singing something heretical, we get moved because the voices are so beautiful. But when the, the purpose of singing is the original reason that God invented the choir, and that is to worship God, That is unspeakable joy. Now There are some church groups that have continued the tradition of teaching music in order to create effective music worshipers. Some of you in this church have grown up in the Mennonite tradition where music is a huge part of of church life, as it ought to be. But the dark point in the history of music worship happened probably five decades ago. A number of decades ago, church choirs began falling off the radar exponentially. And as a result, congregational singing began falling off the radar exponentially as well. There are several reasons for this. The biggest reason was the fact that seeker-friendly churches now were redefining worship as as it being more important to please people than to please God. And so what happened is that choirs began getting sidelined Hymnals began getting side- sidelined. I preached a whole message on why the church needs to return to the hymnal. And instead, churches wanted to get more modern, more people-pleasing. They were trying to match the styles of music being listened to in the secular world. And the irony is, it's usually doing it really badly. You can't keep up with that. And so, choirs were abandoned in favor of a few musicians jumping around on a stage, acting like they're giving a concert. Because now the goal was to please people, not to actually worship God. And choirs of church members were replaced in many cases by professional paid musicians whose goal was not to so much lead people into worship as much as it was to make sure to also build their own record label and recording careers at the same time. The goal was to, you ready for this, invite unbelievers to enjoy worship. Unbelievers can't worship God. Without the cross of Christ, they are unqualified to worship God. It's an affront to God. And so it wasn't worship. Choirs and hymns began to be defined as old-fashioned, as dull, as dusty. And the fact, the fact that churches quit stressing music education meant that the existing choirs were getting older and older and older uh, age-wise. And what did that confirm? Well, look, see, that choirs are old and dusty. Well, it's because you didn't invest in them. And now because of that disconnect that disconnect from music it's very difficult for a church to have a choir ministry because there are very few believers left who grew up or or cut their spiritual teeth in a church environment in which glorious choral music was normal a church environment that was normal was that 10 to 25% of the church was in the choir that used to be normal that we were singing can I tell you this Choir music is not old fashioned. It's ancient. And not only is it ancient, it is also future. Revelation 4 and 5 says that heaven will be filled with the voices of choirs. So somebody says old fashioned. Oh, you haven't gone far enough. It's ancient, and it's future. My concern and Pastor Darren's concern is that we bridge that gap for our generation. Why, why must we go down the road that every other church wants to lead us down? Not every other church. I'm being, I'm being uh, a little bit exaggerating there. But why, why go down that road? We don't have to. Long range at Grace Bible Church, and Darren is already working on this, we want to start investing more in music education not so that you can have wonderful little flute players or singers or things like that for your home, although that's a nice thing, but ultimately, you know what the original purpose of music education was? It was to be able to worship God. I'm going to demonstrate that later this morning. We work at learning to do everything that's important to us, don't we? Just out of curiosity, how many of you here, by show of hands, have had to have some sort of education for the job you're doing right now? There you go. How many of you, by show of hands, have been a part of a formal music music education program in the church to try to improve your worship? Raise your hand. Okay, fewer. It's important. Darren believes, and I agree with him, that tone deafness is a myth. It almost is non-existent physically. What does exist is a church culture that stopped valuing singing. The reason people think they're tone deaf and probably their mother told them that or their teachers told them that is because they never grew up singing and they didn't practice and they didn't learn that they can hear a note and they could sing it. It just takes practice. That's the long range. Short range, we're going to do something fun this morning that Darren is going to lead us in, and I think you're going to enjoy it. It's all yours.